So let's turn to John chapter 16. Let's listen to the words of Jesus because um, we're entering into the, 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 the Easter thinking and the Easter thoughts and uh, we're sort of stepping a little bit out of Hebrews, but not completely because God's word is, is, is always interacting with other parts of it. Um, I want you to, to hear Jesus himself as he speaks to his disciples, uh, as he takes the time to really prepare their hearts for what's about to happen. He knows what's coming. They're still confused. Uh, They're still asking questions. That's okay. As disciples, it's okay to be confused. It's okay to ask questions. Uh, Jesus has the answers. Uh, He doesn't always reveal them when we want the answers, but one day, uh, one day they'll all be revealed and we'll understand uh, this this confusing life uh, with grief and sorrow and, and ups and downs. Uh, sometimes it's exhausting. Sometimes it's real difficult. Um, but Jesus is with us the whole way. And so um, I want to read for you a few verses, and then we'll talk about those, and then we'll read, uh, we'll read through this passage. This is John, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, starting in verse 16. So 16, 16. Um, He's just talked to his disciples about the fact that he's, he's going to be leaving, but this is good for them because he's going to be sending his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come in his place. And he, for some reason, some of it's mysterious to us, for some reason, that's what has to take place. You know, he needs to, to go to the Father and he's going to send the Spirit. The Spirit then can live within us and go wherever we go, be with us wherever we go. You know, whether we're, we're in you know, East Africa or East Chicago or, 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 or wherever, it doesn't matter. The Spirit can be with us. When the Spirit was residing in Christ, he had to be where Christ's body was, right? So he could only be in that village or in that town or in that city of Jerusalem. Um, but now that the Spirit has been given at Pentecost to the church, wherever the church goes, wherever believers in Jesus Christ who are filled with the Spirit, wherever they go, God goes with them. So he's multiplying by billions uh, the effect of the gospel. So he's just told them this, that the the Spirit's going to come. The Spirit will teach them. The Spirit will guide them just like he did. Um, The Spirit will empower them. But he has to tell them in verse 16, Now, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while... You will see me. So it's, it sounds like a riddle almost, right? In a little while you won't see me, but after a little while you'll see me. Uh, he's, he's helping them to, to prepare for what's about to take place because it's going to be like earth shattering for them. So difficult for them. He knows it. They don't quite know it. They haven't quite grasped it. But in this passage, we're going to see that there's a point where they finally get it. So... Let me read these few verses to you, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 16 through 22. In a little while, you'll see me no more, and then after a little while, you'll see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you'll see me no more, and after a little while, you will not see me? And they kept asking, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Do you ever feel like that with Jesus? You read his word or, or the spirit speaks and reminds you of something that Jesus said and you're like, I don't understand. I just can't get my mind around it, right? I don't get it. So this is where the disciples are at. 
we don't understand what he's saying to us. So Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. And so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you'll see me again. I tell you the truth. You will weep. You will mourn while the whole world rejoices. You will grieve, but, here's that important word, but, see it there? You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Hallelujah. So it's the, it's the hand up and down. You will grieve, but your, your grief will turn to joy. Then he uses this example. This, this is something that everybody has, has known a woman or, you know, who's been in a family and seen a, a child born of a neighbor or in a neighborhood. A woman, verse 21, giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. What a promise. Yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It's going to be grief and anguish and difficult, but it's a little while. It's a little while before you have joy that is never-ending. No one can ever take that joy from you. So when a a baby is born, he says, you know, you're going to go through this time as as a mother birthing a baby. Now, I've never had that experience, but some of you have, right? Some haven't, some have. We've seen it. You ever watch uh, Call the Midwife? Oh, you know, my daughter watched that for a while when it first came out. And all you hear for, for... Minutes at a time in that show is the screaming of these poor women. You know, it must have been before they had epidurals and, you know, anesthesia and whatever else. You know, there's the screaming of these moms having these babies. It's got to be anguish. Can you agree? Any of you women who had babies? It's, a, it's anguish, right? So what, what, what Jesus is doing is he's taking something complex for them, and he's trying to help them to understand in everyday language. You know, they've all seen that. They've seen their mother, their aunt, their neighbor, someone, and they've heard it probably, the screaming of, of a mother trying to birth a child. But once the child is in her arms, it's like it's, it didn't matter. In fact, some women say, let's have another one. Let's do this again and again and again, right? So once wasn't enough. That pain was, it's just forgotten when they see their precious little baby and the joy that that baby brings. So Jesus is using that as an example to help them. And this is just before his death, like hours before his arrest. Jesus took the time to prepare his disciples. This is how much he cares for his disciples. He doesn't want us just blindly going through life. He, he leaves a trail for us to follow. He helps us as he guides us as a good shepherd would. So Jesus took time to prepare his disciples because in a little while, everything they thought was going to happen was not going to happen. And all kinds of things would happen that they never thought would happen. Right? Their world was turned upside down. 
the disciples thought, and many of the people following Jesus thought that Jesus had come to conquer the Romans. The Romans had come and conquered them and put them under their, their submission and, and put that heavy boot on their necks, right? And they were looking for someone to come and rescue them from the Romans. But Jesus took on a much greater enemy. He took on death itself. He defeated an enemy greater than the Romans. Where are the Romans now? You know, they're a little country over there in Italy making some pasta, right? That's it, right? So, so they're gone. They're not in power anymore. But death is still here, right? No one lives forever. All of us are, are, are trying to keep ourselves healthy and, and, you know, and eat the right foods and exercise so that we can live a little bit longer because death comes, right? But Jesus has defeated death. Now, the ultimate death, that separation from God for eternity, the second death, right? There's a physical death, but there's also a spiritual death. And Jesus has defeated that. And so he's just on the eve of that, right? He's come and he's defeated the greater enemy, greater than Rome, greater than any empire, greater than any army. The coming events would then change these disciples, once they understood it, from being grieving, fearful, people who are hiding away. We know that from the, from the narrative. If you read through the Easter story, they run and they hide. He changes them into these bold worldwide evangelists, right? They go spreading the gospel all around the known world at that time for them. He changes them because instead of living in the grief, they begin to live in the joy that Jesus has risen again, that Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, we also in him can be alive forever because of our salvation, which he bought for us on the cross. Nobody will be able to take away that joy because the worst thing that anyone can do is put you to death, right? This is what happened to many, many Christians in the early centuries, right? When, when, when all the persecution, the waves of persecution came and they were being put to death, there are still Christians in the world today who suffer from that. But that's the worst anyone can do is kill their physical body. No one can ever kill their spirit, their soul, which has now been born again through their belief in Jesus Christ. So Jesus has defeated that enemy, and he has risen again. Not quite yet in the story where we are, but we know it to be true. Read, read verse 23 with me. In that day, Jesus says, you'll no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, he goes from, from talking about one thing, and it seems like he's switching into something else, but he, he starts talking about the change which will come about in their relationship with God. Once he goes to the cross, their relationship with God is going to change. He's not going to physically be there with them. Now, these are his disciples who've been following him, who've been walking with him, talking with him, asking him, you know, when's lunch, that type of stuff. Like, they could just talk to Jesus, whenever they needed to. But now he says he's leaving. So the relationship is going to change. So he begins to talk about that. Now, not many of you are raised in the Jewish religion. But for Jews, which these people were, this, this is huge. 
doesn't quite have the punch that it had for them, right? This is huge. To the Jews, God, God the Father, was unapproachable. Unapproachable. You could not just approach God with a question. You could not just come to him whenever you wanted to. The whole religious system, which was developed in the Old Testament, made approaching God nearly impossible for your average person. Nobody did that except who? The high priest. But only once a year, right? Hebrews 9 verse 7 says, only the high priest entered the most holy place, the presence of God, and he did that only once a year and never without the blood from a sacrifice, What Jesus is saying here is radically world-changing for these Jews. What he's saying is, you've come through me. You've, You've talked to me. But now, physically, I'm moving on and moving up, right? And you will directly enter into a relationship with your heavenly father like you never imagined was possible. You see, when God was giving the law on Mount Sinai to Moses... He told Moses, do not let the people even touch this mountain that I'm on, or they will die. They knew that story. They've been taught that story. When God spoke the Ten Commandments on that mountain, the people actually begged God to tell God not to say anything to them. Don't talk to them. Just talk to Moses. They wanted someone in between them and God. It was too scary for them. Now we think, well, that's just the Old Testament. But then we have these verses like, like this one in 1 Timothy 6.15 where Paul writes, God, the King of kings who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen at all. Unapproachable light. It's to him that we give honor and might forever and ever. Why is this still a concept? Well, because without Jesus, we just can't come anytime into worship with God, into a relationship with God, into talking with God without Jesus. You have to be clean. Holy, holiness is purity. And as good as some of you are, there ain't none of you who pure, 100%. Y'all got a little bit wrong with you. Y'all got a little bit of brokenness, a little bit of sinfulness. You're still struggling with it and keep on struggling with it. But ain't none of you pure. And because you're not pure 100%, you cannot stand to be in the presence of a holy and pure God with that much power and that much light. It will blow you to pieces. It's too much for you. In fact... You know, in order to go into the temple area, the Jews had been taught through the temple system that God set up through Moses that they had to be checked out by a priest to see if they had any kind of spot, any kind of mole, any kind of wart. Anybody you have any of those? The freckle in the wrong place. Doesn't look quite right. They had to be checked out to even enter the the court of where the public went, right? Where the Jews went. Together, Not the Holy of Holies. No, no, no. Only one man on one day and only with the blood of a sacrifice could enter that place. 
See, God set this requirement for holiness, for cleanliness in, his, in place to teach his people that they just couldn't approach him at any time because he's holy. They needed to understand the concept of holiness to understand the beauty of the gospel, the fact that we could become holy through a holy sacrifice. Now, I want you to remember one more story from the Old Testament because this one always freaked me out when I was a kid. But it said, you know, King David, he was moving the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and it was on a cart and the cart began to tip. And when it tipped, one of those nice helpers tried to keep it from falling over. And when he touched the Ark of the Covenant, he dropped dead. What? These are the things we don't understand. These are the things that in life we're like, wait a minute. Right? What is that all about? Again, the holiness of God is on display. God is showing that you can't just touch him. You can't just move into his arena without a proper cleansing. Without a proper sacrifice. God's not just saying, give me space. I don't want you near me. He's not saying that at all. In fact, God invites us into his presence. But what he's saying is, I'm holy. I'm so holy that you cannot touch me. You cannot come into my presence without a total cleansing. Totally clean. Not one speck of dirt. Now, let's just look under your fingernails in case any of you are doing any work yesterday on a car or in your yard. There's probably a few specks of dirt left there. For you kids, it might be behind your ears, you know? You didn't wash well enough, right? We all carry that with us. Scripture says clearly, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us is holy. So God sent his son. It was God's plan all along to display holiness, to live a life of holiness so that we could then, through Christ, approach God. So God even said to Moses, when Moses requested, now Moses and God, they were tight, right? They were meeting on the mountain and he's getting the Ten Commandments from God. Like they were tight. Says he was a friend of God, you know? Says he spent time in God's presence and his face actually glowed when he came out of that place, when he came down from the mountain. And the people said, can you, can you put something over your face? It's like freaking us out. You've been with God. You're, you're, you're just showing God to us. In a, in a strange way through your face, you know, it's shining. But when Moses requested to see God's face, God said to him, no, Moses, you can't take it. You can't take it. He said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Now, this is what the Jews were brought up on. This is their scripture. This is their hero, Moses. This is what they know of God. So what Jesus is doing here is making a radical change in their relationship with their maker, with their creator. So how do we approach God? If God is unapproachable, he lives in unapproachable light, how do we approach God? Only through Jesus. Let's say that together. Only through Jesus. That's the only way to approach God. Now read verse 24. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. 
You have not asked for anything from God in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Until now, right? So here we go. Until now, but something's changing. Jesus is teaching his disciples that until now, they haven't had a direct relationship with the Father. They've only talked to Jesus. They've only worked through the temple system, the sacrifices, through the high priest. They had priests, but now they're going to have a personal relationship with their heavenly Father. We take that for granted. As Christians, we were brought up in in Sunday school being taught that. You know, you have a father in heaven. He loves you so much. He gave his son. So we take that all for granted. But at this moment in history, in the gospel, this is radical. There's nothing like this, right? They had their priests, but now Jesus is saying, you can have a personal, direct relationship with your father in heaven. You've been able to ask me, Christ, anything, but I'm not going to remain with you here physically. I'm, I'm on my way, right? Your relationship is now going to shift to the Father. Your Father who loves you so much that he sent me. You're going to be asking the Father from now on whatever you want to ask. And he's going to hear you and he's going to respond to you. But you don't just waltz into God's presence and say, oh, hey, hey, how you doing, God? What's up? Can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? You don't just do that. Let's keep reading. What does it say? Jesus instructs them, you must come in my name, in my name, in Jesus' name. Jesus is instructing them in a brand new way of relating to God. For us, it's, it's old hat, Right? But maybe we take advantage of it. Maybe we don't think about it enough. And at Easter, what a great time to think about it because that's when it changed. Through the sacrifice of our Savior, everything changed. Your relationship with God was opened up. But we must come in his name. Until now, you haven't done that, he tells the disciples. So now I want you to start doing that. Now that you know me, now that, you, that, that Jesus' disciples knew him personally, he gives them the privilege and the right to now know the Father. What does it mean to, to use Jesus' name in prayer? Is it just some little magical phrase we put at the ends of our prayers? Like, oh God, give me a good day, help me find a job, help me, you know, da 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 In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. I do it. I know you do it too. I pray with you sometimes. In Jesus' name, amen. Do we really understand the the power of that? The power of those words? It's not like some magical phrase that we add. It's all about our relationship with him. When we say in the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name, we are reminding ourselves about something related to approaching God. Jesus is the means to our getting absolutely anything from God, any mercy, any grace, any attention, any love. Jesus is the means. He is our access. He's our door. He's the gate. He's the entrance. 
Not to be crude, but here's an example. It's a, it's, it's a little bit like having a backstage pass, right? You know, here's God sort of up on this exalted stage with lights and, you know, that's a, and, and, and there's, a, there's Jesus saying like, here, here's your pass. Now that you know me, you know, you know somebody who works for the big guy, he's going to give you access. And so now you have this backstage pass with God that you say like, I'm coming because Jesus gave this to me. He gave me this right. He gave me this privilege. And so I'm here in Jesus' name. I didn't earn this pass. I didn't buy this pass. It was a gift to me from your son, Jesus. And now I have full access to my heavenly father. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying this to God. God, I am not attempting in any way to approach you on my own. I got no right to do that. I'm dirty. If we could be here for a week, we'd go back into the washing of the disciples' feet. But just think about that for a moment because it just happened in the narrative, right? Jesus is talking here. But just before this, he was demonstrating by washing his disciples' feet. And there's a whole nother message in there. But just, just think about it. When you come to God in Jesus' name, you're not coming on your own merit. We have no right to do that. God has no obligation to us. We have failed. We have fallen. We have sinned. He has no obligation to listen to our prayers, to receive us. None. No obligation apart from his own loving kindness towards us. His grace, his mercy, that's it. We could never stand in his presence unless he sent his son because he loved us that much. The access that we must use when we come to the Father is we come in the name of your one and only Son, Jesus, who gave us permission to come into your presence. That's what God is saying to us. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. But now Jesus is saying, I want you to go before the Father. I want you to ask because of your relationship with me. I want you to go right in there. And enter into that beautiful relationship so that your Father in heaven can pour out his blessing on you. That's how we can approach the Father. Always through his Son. This negates that whole ridiculous argument that's in our culture right now. That all roads lead to God. Bull. All roads do not lead to God. Jesus is the only way which leads to God. This is what the Bible teaches us. If you're hearing some other message, block it out. Go, I don't want to hear that because that's not true. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He was the perfect sacrifice which the Father provided himself for us. Because we couldn't provide it. We couldn't do it. There are no other ways to your heavenly Father. Jesus is our access point. Let's read a little further here. Verse 25. Though I have been speaking figuratively, figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, and I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. 
I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So here's the thing. I get this confused myself. Sometimes I think I'm praying through Christ. But look at what, look at what Jesus says here. I am not saying that I will ask the Father for you or on your behalf. That's interesting, isn't it? We actually have, because of Christ, direct access to the Father. It's not even like a step below. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy that sinners like us could have access to a holy God through Christ? Jesus is speaking very clearly here. We need this clarification because we do get the idea that in the Old Testament, God doesn't like us too much because of our sin. That if we get too close, we might get burned, right? And we need Jesus to sort of butter him up a little, soften him up before we go in, right? But that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what God is actually like. Jesus says right here that he is not going to go on our behalf. But on that day, we'll go directly to God, personally, but in Jesus' name, in our relationship through his son. And once we get backstage, we'll have direct access to our heavenly father. Why? It says it right here clearly in verse 27. The father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. And we know that Jesus loves us because Jesus went to the cross for us. But the Father loves us? Of course. Is he angry at us? Not anymore. Christ took his anger, his wrath, for all of our sin. He took it to the cross. God's not annoyed with you. He's not angry with you. He's not just barely tolerating you. He loves you. Let that sink in more deeply. I know you know it, but we have to keep hearing it again and again because there's lots of things in us and around us that tell us otherwise, that we feel otherwise. But God loves us. He wants to bless us. He wants an intimate relationship with us. And there's no way for us to do that apart from Christ. Christ is the one who makes that relationship possible because he's our access. But there's more. You see, Jesus is the means of our freedom when we come into God's presence. Let me explain this for a minute. If we were not forgiven... If you knew you sinned, and then you were invited into God's presence, there's something inside of us called a conscience, which would react to that presence. You're carrying a bunch of sin, like say you just murdered five people or something like that, and then someone's like, oh, let's pray. Immediately, you start thinking, like, wait a minute, I can't go before God. I'm filthy, I'm dirty, I'm disgusting, I'm horrible, I'm mean, I'm awful. Those things are true. You just murdered five people. What are you going to do? You need the forgiveness, the washing, the cleansing, the removing of all of that, which only comes through the blood of Jesus. Again, there are no other ways Lots of other stories of other ways, but they're not true. Jesus is the only one who cleanses us so that when we walk into God's presence, I don't feel ashamed. I don't feel afraid. 
I can walk in, in, in Jesus into his presence, into the Father's presence, as a sinner saved by grace, free from guilt and shame and fear. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the relationship that God wants us to have. We shouldn't be scared to death to enter into our heavenly Father's presence. And if we're forgiven through the blood of Jesus and through our relationship with Christ by faith, we don't have to be. What is the thing that causes us people to come boldly before the throne of grace? It's forgiveness. Not because you're you. You're so special. God just wants to see you. No! You're forgiven. And God was happy to make that happen through his son. He wanted a relationship with you. So he sent his son. Jesus died on the cross for us. He took our sins on himself. What's the implication of that? Now I can stand boldly before my father. Because God's not looking at Tom. He's not looking at Linda. He's not looking at Ginny. He's not looking at Mike. God's looking at Christ and seeing you in him. I, I don't know how that happens. It is a mystery, right? My brain's too small to grasp all that. But God's not actually seeing just me. Thank God. He's seeing me in Christ, clothed in Christ, Paul says. Hidden in Christ. So that when God looks at his beloved son, I'm in there somewhere. I'm part of that. I'm part of the family of God. And you are too through your salvation and your faith in Christ. This is the powerful change that is about to happen on Easter. It's already happened for us. But for these disciples, it's about to happen. He's telling them, you no longer need a hundred different steps to get ready to enter into a prayer with your heavenly father. Just believe and love me. Because let's look at this verse again, verse 27. Why does God love them? Well, the answer here in this verse, it says, the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Loving Jesus for what he did, taking your sin from you and nailing it on the cross, washing you with his blood, loving him for that, setting you free from sin and shame and guilt for eternity, isn't too hard. Loving Jesus, believing that he is the way, the truth, the life, the one, the only son of God who could give us such a beautiful gift. That's so beautiful. It's like if you want the father to love you, just love his son. Because it, it's a package deal. You love Jesus, the father loves you. It's like when you got your kids, you know, some of you who have kids. If someone's good to your kid, you like that person, right? If someone's like, you know, just blesses your child, you're, you have good feelings towards them, right? If they're mean to your kid... You don't have such good feelings, right? So loving Jesus brings the Father's love even more deeply into our lives. Now let's, let's read verse 29. Then Jesus' Jesus's disciples say, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. 
Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. They get it. It's like their eyes are being opened. Jesus is literally just hours from the cross. It must have delighted him that finally they believe. In fact, he says in verse 31, you believe at last, right? He's been walking with these guys. These guys, sometimes they get it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes he has to say, get behind me, Satan. Sometimes he doesn't. You know, it's, they're back and forth all the time. They're afraid. They're going to die in the boat. In the, you know, oh, why are you sleeping? You know, they're freaking out. You know, so he's putting up with them, putting up with them, trying to teach them, trying to show them, trying to demonstrate God's love, God's power in their lives. And finally, just before the cross, he says, you believe at last, finally. Now, he knows the future. He knows that in just a few hours, these guys who believe are going to run and hide. They're going to deny him around the fire as he's going through the, the trial, right? They're scared. They're going to hide in their apartment. He knows that about them, but he knows even further into the future. Here's the beauty of God. He's the Alpha and Omega. He knows the, the beginning, the middle, and the end. So the middle is the trial, they're hiding, they're scared. But the end is they're filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They go out preaching boldly about Jesus Christ, and thousands of people are saved, and the church of God is birthed and has never died since. They're going to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. So he can see that. Now, sometimes we forget that in our own lives. We think, oh, God, he must see that about me today. I'm a horrible person today. I'm in a bad mood. I treated that person bad. He sees that, but he sees beyond that because of his grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. He sees that you will walk in victory because of what God is doing in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God's not mad at them. He's not, he's not sad because he knows that they're going to deny him. He just keeps on pouring his life into them because he's looking at the long view. And he's, he's giving us an example of how we should live as well. Past the short pain to the long joy, right? We all have trouble in this life. We all have pain. But the long story is it ends in joy in Christ. It's a joy that no one can ever take from you. See, he knows he's speaking to the pillars of the church. He knows that they are the men he has chosen to lead the kingdom of God and move it out into the entire earth. So he loves them for that. He knows they're going to blow it. He knows you and I are going to blow it. They're going to have bad days and good days. But he loves you because you're faithful. You get back up. You let him cleanse you. You keep walking. You keep going. You want to please him in every way. Now, before we go, we have to look at verse 33. It's like the, the atomic bomb, right? It's the best. I want you to understand it. I know I'm running a little long on time. That's because Pastor Mike's not here holding his stopwatch to me, right? So I, I, I need you to understand this verse. This is maybe the most powerful verse in this whole thing. He says, I have told you these things, so these things we just talked about, so that you may have 
Do you see the word? Peace. Now, I thought about this this week. You may have peace. Because if you look at the next sentence, it says, in this world, you will have trouble. And then I went back to the... Go, go back to the slide. I went back. You may have peace, so maybe you won't have peace, but maybe you will have peace. Sounds like a choice to me. Jesus offers peace to us because he knows something is true. In this world, you will have trouble. He doesn't say you may have trouble. You will have trouble. You're a follower of Jesus. There will be persecutions and hardships and trials and tribulations. You will have trouble. I don't like trouble. My wife doesn't like trouble. When we got trouble, we, we're, we're just like you. Like, eh, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't good. We don't like trouble. But that's not the end of the verse. Keep reading. You may have peace. In other words, I offer you peace. Because in this world you will have trouble, but take heart or be brave or have courage when you have trouble. And then these are the famous last words before Jesus prays his high priestly prayer, which is chapter 17, which we won't get into this week. But these words, be brave. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Now, again, not Rome, not Greece, not America. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the trouble in this world. He has overcome our sin. He has overcome our sicknesses. He has overcome our disease. He has overcome all of these things through the cross. And I love the fact that he speaks as though it's already happened. Because actually, he hasn't actually gone to the cross yet. But because he's a man of faith, and he wants us to be people of faith as well, he is speaking as though it's already happened. I have already overcome the world because of my plan that I'm going to carry out here in just a few hours. What a wonderful Savior. What a beautiful Savior we have. That he has given us the right, the privilege, the forgiveness that we needed, the, the courage that we need to stand in the midst of trial. I want you to, to just understand the victory that we have in Christ. We are on the winning team. Now, when you're in the middle of a game and you don't know who's going to win, you get nervous, right? Especially if the other team pulls ahead. So the other team pulls ahead and they get, you know, you know whatever it is, points depending on which game you're playing, they got a lot of points and you got little points in the middle of the game. Then maybe into the next section of the game and the next section of the game. But then the last few minutes of the game, you pull it out. You get a bunch of, let's call them touchdowns. You get a bunch of touchdowns and you win, right? Now, during that game and during the ups and downs of that game, sometimes you think you're going to lose. Other times you think you're going to win. Jesus does this cool thing in this verse. He basically tells us the end of the story. When you're going through hard times, when you're having pain and struggle in your life, here's the spoiler. Jesus wins. Jesus always wins. 
He never loses. And so he tells them the end of the story. It's like you're going to a movie, this great movie. Everybody's like, oh, go to the movie, go to the movie. And someone says, hey, guess how it ends? The villain, he dies. You just ruined the movie, right? We don't like that when it happens with a movie. But when you're in trouble and someone comes and says, guess what? I've overcome your trouble. I've already done that. In fact, from the cross, Jesus says, it's finished. Game over, right? You don't have to finish it for me. It is finished. I have overcome the world. So here's this little prayer, this little thing that I want us to think about. Because I'm not asking you to deny trouble. Neither is Jesus. Sometimes Christians get the wrong idea. They say, oh, I can never, never say that there's trouble. You know? there, there is trouble in this world. Jesus almost promises it, right? I'm not asking you to deny it. I'm asking you to choose to stay in peace or to get yourself in peace because of Christ's victory. Not because of the trouble, but because Jesus has defeated that trouble. When someone asks you then why you're not freaking out in the middle of trouble, you can answer this way. I put it on a slide for you, and this will be before we sing our song. Why aren't you freaking out? Max, why aren't you freaking, freaking out, Nancy? Why aren't you freaking out, Mike? Well, because I choose peace even though things are really bad right now. Well, why do you do that? Why do you choose peace? Because, let's read this together, Jesus has overcome. And in him, I'm going to overcome in the end. I claim his victory as my own. God is good that he sent his son to us. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask that you would bless us today with your presence, with your power, with the joy that you came to give us through Jesus Christ. As we leave here as a people, Lord, help us to take that joy into a joyless world. Take that joy into the trouble that's out there and bring peace, peace that can only come through the name of Jesus, we pray. It's in his beautiful name.